Turn again to John's Gospel, chapter 7. John chapter 7. This morning we'll look at verses 14 to 18 in our continuing study here. John 7, 14 to 18. I read the last week in, a, in an address to some college students in Atlanta, the House Speaker, Newt Gingrich, commented these words. A civilization entering the information age in which only 26% of fourth graders can read at the fourth grade level is a civilization faced with a crisis of the first order. Well, I suspect that that's true. But Mr. Speaker, may I suggest that we have an even greater crisis. A civilization entering the information age having lost its ability to discern truth from error, having lost even the conviction that there is such a thing as truth, having widely rejected the God in whom all truth is grounded, there is a civilization faced with a spiritual crisis, not just of the first order, but which threatens its eternal soul. This morning my desire is that we might more clearly see Jesus who said, I am the truth. Let me read these verses. Verse 14. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. We'll stop there with verse 18. There are two things that I'd like for us to learn this morning that I think this passage teaches us, applied to us as best as I know how to apply them. The first is this. Jesus knows more than your experts. Jesus knows more than your experts. You see, we live in a society of experts. We're filled with experts. You have them in your life, I have them in my life. There are teachers, our doctors, our counselors, our technical consultants, media people that we trust, newscasters, uh, talk show hosts, perhaps magazines we read, authors that we trust, experts to whom we look for guidance, who we trust, put our confidence in, at one time or another. 
Well, Jesus lived in a world of experts, too. Experts in the Old Testament scriptures, which were both the civil law and the religious law. Had to do with both state and church. These experts were the scribes, the teachers of the law. They were the authority on the interpretation of every verse of the scriptures. Dr. D.A. Carson describes kind of how their work went. He says, one of the consequences of studying for years in the rabbinical centers was the tendency to substantiate every pronouncement by appealing to precedent, to earlier rabbinic judgments. Not to do so might indicate a certain arrogance and independence of spirit in danger of drifting from the weight of tradition. So one scribe quoted another scribe and and, and, and that scribe wrote commentaries on the interpretation of some other teacher until there were layers upon layers of theological traditions, of authoritative guidelines, of bureaucratic regulations surrounding God's word until, frankly, all of that almost totally obscured the original word. Of God. By the time Jesus came, the traditions of men, the judgments of the experts, had effectively nullified the Word of God for the public, by and large. But in our text today, we see that Jesus was a refreshing contrast to the experts of his day. Look at verse 14 and 15 again. He went up to teach in the temple courts. Verse 15, the Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Their question is, how did Jesus get to know the scriptures without having gone to seminary? He hadn't been to the rabbinical schools. He had not learned the traditions of the experts. Actually, other parallel passages tell us that Jesus' whole manner of teaching was in contrast to the teachers of his day. Matthew 7 says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Luke 4, we read of him, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And even in this chapter 7 of John, we get down to verse 46, we'll see that they, the guards that they sent out to arrest him came back without him. And their answer was, no one ever spoke the way this man does. They couldn't arrest him. Jesus knew more than their experts so in our text, the people seek some kind of an explanation. How did this happen? How did Jesus get such wisdom? And Jesus himself answers them quite plainly in verse 16. He says, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. And he goes on some more in verse 18. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. 
Here Jesus distinguishes himself from their teachers. Their teachers quoted the previous experts. They quoted the other rabbis. They quoted the legal precedents, the traditions of the elders. Jesus spoke with authority. He didn't quote authorities. But Jesus also distinguishes himself from those who would come with some creative new theology. He says, I don't come to speak anything of my own, anything new. I come only speaking what the Father said. In fact, in the process, Jesus distinguished himself from the prophets of old. They had spoke God's word truly. They thundered, thus saith the Lord. But Jesus doesn't come saying, thus saith the Lord. Jesus comes saying, truly, truly, I say to you. You see, Jesus claims precedence over every expert. Actually, Jesus didn't have to claim to be greater than the experts. The public who heard him admitted his expertise, admitted his authority. Can you picture this situation? You remember that they were hunting for him in Jerusalem. There was such common knowledge that they were out to kill him that people were afraid to speak. They discussed privately. Do you think he's good? I don't know. I think he's a deceiver. No, he's a good man. But they would not speak openly. The leaders were threatening him. The people were afraid. And yet in the middle of the feast, he shows up in the most popular place in the temple courts. And there he begins to teach. And in spite of people's fear and in spite of people's hostility, what do they say in verse 15? They are amazed. Wow. How did this man get such learning? Even in the midst of the worst kind of hostility, they could not deny that Jesus knew more than all the experts. Folks, Jesus still knows more than all the experts. You see, in the church we continue to have experts like these scribes who quote the scholars as if they had real authority, who make reference to historical precedent as if it somehow established God's truth, who guard the bureaucratic regulations of church order, and the layers of creeds and catechisms as if they came from the Holy Spirit himself. Until the word of God sometimes seems to be lost in the shuffle. But Christ Jesus still speaks his father's word clearly. Through all those barnacles of tradition that we have just like they have. He speaks to those who will listen, to those who have ears to hear, to those who will pick up his word and open it, and with open heart read and ask him to speak the Father's truth. Jesus knows more than all the experts 
Oh, but we have a new kind of expertise to contend with in our day. You see, actually, very few people think of theologians as experts in society anymore. Pastors and theologians and teachers of the faith are esteemed right up there with used car salesmen, generally, these days. No, we have a new breed of experts. The psychiatrist. The medical doctor. The psychologist. The university professor. The research science, scientist. The counselors of every kind. The social workers. The shakers and movers of the social agenda. Oh, these experts do not obscure the word of God by all of the traditions of the faith. By all of their interpretations, no. These experts tend to nullify the word of God as irrelevant to real life. A relic of a primitive past, a book of myths, a crutch for the weak, a collection of tales with no scientific merit, cute folklore for ignorant people. You're lucky if you find an expert of our day who's willing to engage in a serious fight against the truth. More likely, they just ignore it as irrelevant. But this morning, I declare to you that Jesus still knows more than the experts, even our experts. His claim that he comes from the Father, does the Father's will, speaks the Father's truth, only for the Father's honor. Folks, that claim is still unparalleled in human history. Well, we have lots of people like he describes in verse 18, people who speak on their own to gain honor for themselves. But look around at all the experts in all the fields and where would you ever find anyone of whom you could say with verse 18, there's nothing false about this man. There isn't anyone. There isn't anyone. Only one. And that is Jesus. He still knows more than all the experts. Oh, you know, it's easy to say that you believe that. But I challenge you, then who's really calling the shots in your life? Who has the place of the expert to whom you will listen above all others? Where do you run for counsel when you really need help who has the last word in your decision-making? Whose advice would you never go against? I challenge you, Jesus really does know more than your experts. Whether they're the guys you work with every day or the people you see and hear on the media or the PhDs who teach in our universities or the counselors and consultants to whom we run in times of trouble, I call you to unreservedly bow your heart and your ears and your mind to listen to this Jesus. 
his word, to seek his counsel, to trust his spirit, to walk in his ways, because this is the way of life. He's the expert who knows. You see, when he says God hasn't changed, God is still holy as ever, and his law is still righteous as ever, he knows what he's talking about. When Jesus says that we're not good people like we think we are, but we're evildoers in danger of God's wrath, that may not be what the experts are saying, but he knows what he's talking about. When he calls you and I to turn from our sin, lest it destroy us and condemn us for all eternity, your friends may think that's old-fashioned, but he knows what he's talking about. When he declares that he came to seek and to save sinners who have no other hope, He knows what he's talking about when he promises that his death on the cross is the only thing sufficient to pay for your sin and the only thing great enough to pay for the worst of sinners. He knows what he's talking about when he declares that his resurrection guarantees eternal life for those who trust in him. He knows what he's talking about when he warns that every other promise of meaningful life is a lie. That he alone is able to save sinners, heal broken hearts, restore fallen people, and redeem their lives. He knows what he's talking about. When he tells us that the world is our enemy, not our friend. That Satan is out to destroy us and that our own hearts will deceive us. That only by walking with him and the power of his spirit and listening to his word and doing what he says, that only there do we have any hope to ever survive in this fallen world. He knows what he's talking about. And when he promises that this life is so short that we don't even know what tomorrow holds and eternity is so certain and so long that we would better lose the whole world than to lose our soul. He's been there. He knows what he speaks of. He knows more than all of your experts. He's not one of many experts whose advice we ought to weigh. He is the only one who has a clue about these things. Everyone else is speculating. This morning, without apology, I call you to listen and to follow this Jesus. He is in the business of putting together a kingdom, a new race of people who believe in him. Millions of people from every race, from every continent, over hundreds of years, amassing this mighty army who are advancing under the banner of his name throughout history all the way to a new creation. This mighty army seems like nothing to the world because they don't see it all amassed at one time and they don't hear the battle cry. But he promises that this army will trample in its feet, in the dust, every expert that would dare to stand and speak against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to believe? It's time to decide. Jesus knows more than all your experts. So how can we know what to do? 
Well, that brings us to our second thing, kind of a startling truth. You can't know Jesus till you're willing to follow him. Yeah, that's what I said. You can't know Jesus till you're willing to follow him. Jesus knows more than all your experts, but you can't know Jesus until you're willing to follow him. Sometimes I tease my wife on a thing like this. I say, Jane, will you do something for me? She naturally says, what? I says, what? You mean you have to ask? You won't just say yes? Don't you trust me? And she smiles and I smile because she knows and I know that nobody is worthy of such unconditional trust. God is. God is. And that's what he expects. Will you do something for me? He says. And we want to say what? The right answer is yes. Yes. In our text, here's the issue. Jesus' claims are so profound and so far-reaching and so controversial that the people are caught in the middle. What are they going to believe? Here are their leaders over here trying to kill him, and yet he seems to be offering nothing short of God himself and eternal life. What am I going to do? How do I know? How do I know if he's true or not? If I follow him, they might kill me too. But if I don't follow him, what if he's right? How am I going to know? Our natural tendency is to say, well, I have to get more information. I better not commit myself. I better stay out of this controversy and just back off and just kind of wait here and take it all in and take notes. And then when I get enough information and when I see which way things are going and when I get all the facts that I want, then I'll make a decision of whether he's true or not true. Sounds like a logical approach, doesn't it? Conservative approach. Don't step out on a limb here. They might cut it off behind you. That's a, that's a better approach, isn't it? I'll wait until I know for sure before I commit. Jesus says no. Jesus says you've got it all backwards. You've got the cart before the horse, Jesus says. You can't know me. You can't know. You will never know. Until you first are willing to follow. That's what he says. Look at verse 17. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. This is amazing. Jesus isn't trying to sell himself. He's not out there trying to market himself saying, well, I'm really good at this and I'm really good at this and boy, I'll give you this and I'll give you that and I'll promise you blessing and wealth and boy, you'll just feel good all the time. No. He's not pleading. He's not trying to manipulate. He's not begging. He's not nagging. In fact, he says, the truth is you can't know. You'll never know until you commit. Till you're, will, un, till you're willing to unconditionally commit yourself to the Lord, to God, to do His will, no matter what it is, you can't know. 
You don't know if I'm true or false. You won't ever know. Boy, it sounds backwards, doesn't it? What's going on here? Where is Jesus coming from? You see, we are so used to seeing all of reality as beginning right here. Old number one. Ourselves. We're so consumed with my rights. My choice. My wisdom. My judgment. It's hard for us to even understand what Jesus is saying here. Let me try to explain it. Stick with me here. Now think hard with me for a few minutes. Here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is presupposing, rightfully presupposing, that truth itself belongs to God, not you. Truth proceeds from God, comes from him, not from you. That truth perfectly conforms to God. That truth always serves God. And his anointed one, his Messiah. That's why the Proverbs say to us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, that makes sense because if all truth and all wisdom and all knowledge and all discernment belong to God, begin with Him, end with Him, conform to Him, serve Him, how are we ever going to get any of it? The only way a human being could ever attain any wisdom is to get it from God. So the fear of the Lord would be the beginning. When we go to God, that's where we would start to get wisdom and knowledge and discernment. Oh, but you see, Jesus' opponents here, and we too, we like to see things just the opposite of that. We assume that we are the ones whose discernment we trust, whose judgment we believe in. We are the ones who have enough wisdom to make our own decisions. We are the ones who have the right to decide what's true and not true. Okay, well then let me ask you. How are you going to do that? Where are you going to get the wisdom, the knowledge, the discernment, the truth that it takes to make a right judgment, in this case concerning God? You have no source of wisdom, knowledge, and discernment except God. It's his. He owns it. You're going to have to borrow wisdom and knowledge and discernment from God in order to make a decision, a judgment, as to whether he's true or not. You begin to see the absurdity of this? Ah, but when we try to take God's wisdom and God's truth and take it down and strip God out of it, what are we left? We're not left with nice, healthy wisdom and discernment and judgment. We're left with broken pieces of wisdom and logic and discernment and knowledge and truth, and we try to put them all together, and they don't fit, and it doesn't work, and we end up with a mess on our hands, faulty conclusions. Think of it this way. Think of wisdom and knowledge and discernment as a computer, God's computer. 
God is the electrical power that runs this computer. And you decide, in your infinite wisdom, that you're going to do a computer analysis on whether God exists or not. You're going to do a computer analysis on whether there is such a thing as electrical power. So you go over and you say, God, I want to borrow your computer for a while and bring it over. But you can't plug it in now, you see, because you don't want to admit that electrical power exists. So you can't plug it in. So you get out your little battery pack that you, God gave you because you're made in his image. And you try to hook it up to that and you get a few little stray bolts running around you. Suddenly you get some numbers and letters up on the screen. You say, all right, I got this working. I'm going to run this program. Except that when you try, nothing works. It doesn't compute right. It doesn't work. It's a mess. None of the programs run. You get pieces and bits of information, but none of them fit together, and you've got a mess on your hands. And so you say, see, did a computer study. There's no such thing as electricity. I figured it out. You see, that's what we're doing. If we think that we have the wisdom to sit in judgment of God, apart from his wisdom. We will come up with faulty conclusions because we use faulty thinking. We use thinking disconnected from its source. And so in the end, we're going to conclude some distortion of reality that ends up having us at the center of our world, which is exactly where we begin, with us as the center trying to decide if God exists or not. You see, the problem is that once we start trying to think apart from God so that we might judge him, we have no, nothing to stand on to think that way. It's like we're stepping off into space. For we, in our thinking, our mind, Truth itself, wisdom, discernment, knowledge, everything is from God. We have no way to get out of that relationship. We are his creature. We can't step outside of being a creature to judge whether there's a creator or not. All we can do is to become a rebel, a traitor, fighting against God. As we fight against God as a traitor, we'll never come to to true conclusions because we're prejudiced against him. So we never get there. We never get a right judgment. We end up with foolishness. We end up with things that sound logical but are contradictory. Our society is full of it. You see, Jesus knows what he's talking about when he says you can never really know him until you first are willing to follow him. In other words, if you will humble yourselves, subject your minds to his truth. If we will bow our wills unconditionally to him, wherever your truth leads, Lord, that's where I'll go. Then we can think right. Then we can use wisdom as it really is. God-centered wisdom. Then we can come to sure knowledge for we think God's thoughts like he thinks them. Then we can come to true truth. And then Jesus promises, you will know.
you will know whether I'm true or not. I know this is difficult to think about, hard to follow, but it's very important. You see, the issue is, what's at the center of reality? If God is at the center of reality, and if he's not, he's not God. If God is at the center of reality, then there's no way for me to step out of reality to judge him. He's at the center of reality for me too. To remove him is to distort everything. And I end up knowing nothing. We can never know Jesus till we're willing to follow him. So what does all this mean in practice? It means if you're trying to put God to the test, you're standing out in thin air. You have nothing to stand on. And your conclusions are already determined before you start thinking. I'll tell you right now what you'll come up with. You'll come up with a conclusion that there is really no God or that there's a God who you've created in your own image because you've reasoned with faulty thinking that's got God out of it. And your heart wants to believe there's no God, that you are indeed God. And so, reasoning without God, you will conclude that Jesus is a fake and that you're the center of real truth and you go merrily on your way until God someday judges you because you knew better and you believed a lie. But there's another way, and that's the way that Jesus sets before his people in our text and the way he sets before us. And that is unconditional surrender to God right up front. That we come to God and we say to him, because you are God, whatever you do is right. That's what I want. Because you made me, whatever you have for me is the best. That's what I want. Because you know everything, you know the truth about Jesus, and that's what I want to know. And so God, here's my life, lock, stock, and barrel, every bit of it. It is at your disposal. Here I am. Show me what's right, and I'll do it unconditionally, no matter what it is, no matter where it takes me, here I am. And God's promise is, in verse 17, if anyone chooses to do God's will like that, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Folks, that course of action is not irrational. That is the only course of action that makes sense. In his book, Basic Christianity, John Stott suggests this prayer. In the preface to the book, as he begins, he's going to present the gospel, he's going to present the claims of Christ. He suggests that his readers start here. And I suggest it to you too. Here's the prayer. God, if you exist, and I don't know if you do, 
And if you can hear this prayer, and I don't know if you can, I want to tell you that I am an honest seeker after the truth. Show me. If Jesus is your son, the savior of the world, if you bring that conviction to my mind, I will follow him. I will trust him as my Lord, wherever that takes me. Here I am. Committed up front. And Stott concludes, no one can pray such a prayer and be disappointed. I read about a woman who lost her life savings in a fraudulent business scheme that had been concocted by some swindler and sold to her. And when her investment disappeared and her dream was shattered, she went to the Better Business Bureau. Why on earth didn't you come to us first? The official said. Didn't you know about the Better Business Bureau? Oh, yes, said the lady sadly. I have always known about you. But I didn't come because I was afraid you'd tell me not to do it. Oh, the folly of human nature. That even though we know where the answers lie. We don't turn there for fear of what we'll hear. I remind you this morning, Jesus knows more than all your experts. But you can't know him until you're willing to follow. Amen. Shall we pray? Oh, Lord, I know that it's hard to reason through this because it's the opposite of how we think. It's how you think. So, Lord, I pray that you would pick up the pieces of broken thinking in our minds and somehow put it together. May we at least understand, Lord, the bottom line of it all. That we, your creatures, are in no position to sit in judgment of you. We can only submit to you or rebel against you. And if we submit, you will lead us. And if we rebel, we will lose. Oh, Father, take your word and grow it in our hearts. Until the fruit of absolute, total, unconditional surrender is our daily way of life. Till we wait on you and seek your guidance, listen to your voice, and are oblivious to everything that contradicts because we have such bold confidence that you are truth. Your way is right. Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. Work that in us, Father, I pray. And the mysterious work of your spirit whereby you take your truth and change us. We ask you to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.